0: Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave, I am Mario Vein. This is episode 21, Image Thinking and Travelling Concepts with Mika Bau. Plato's allegory of the cave is often interpreted as showing us how to think. But in previous episodes we discussed how the allegory itself is a kind of image that can be read as a theory of images and imaging and that has also produced many images ever since Plato wrote about it. Just think of the many films and artworks that have been inspired by Plato's cave. If Plato's cave is about thinking, then it seems that we cannot think without images. So what is this connection between image image? and thinking. If thinking is enhanced, or even depends on making images, does that mean that art-making is also a kind of thinking? In this episode, we discuss Mika Baal's 45th book, which is called Image Thinking, Art-Making as Cultural Analysis. It was published this year, and I really recommend it. I spoke with Mika before, in episode 3, about art, urgency, and internship. Mieke started as a literary scholar. Her commitment is to interdisciplinary approaches to cultural artifacts and their potential effects. She focuses on gender, migratory culture, psychoanalysis, and the critique of capitalism. Mieke supervised 81 PhDs, published 45 books, and curated many exhibitions. She also directed films and documentaries, many of which have been exhibited as video installations all over the world. Mika was recently elected for the year 2022-2023 to the one-year chair L'Enfention de l'Europe par les langues et la culture at the Collège de France in Paris. Her book Image Thinking proposes a new model of synthesis of creative and intellectual work. It merges theoretical and practical considerations in innovative and empowering ways, while clarifying difficult concepts through accounts of practice, including trauma, agency, identity, and affect. Speaking of concepts, we also briefly discussed Mika's influential idea of traveling concepts, which I have been working with a lot, and which she introduced in her 2002 book Travelling Concepts in the Humanities. I hope that this discussion around image thinking and traveling concepts will be helpful to you. As we mentioned a few times in our conversation, it's not so much about applying these concepts but about working with them and making them your own. They're like gifts or even friends. If you have any questions or comments, or if you want to find out how you can support this podcast, go to livefromplatoscave.com. Okay, we we switch to English. (laughs)
1: Yes, oh yeah, right. (laughs)
0: Um, That's always uh, good to know. Otherwise, only some of the people will be able to follow it, I guess. Oh, of course. So I do have some... People listening from South Africa, I know, so they, they might be able to follow it. Well, uh, we spoke a little over a year ago, and uh, you mentioned that you were uh, working on a book, Image Thinking, and uh, now it's out, and now we can discuss it. So I'm very happy about that. I am too. <laughs> and just to say, I, I have the book here, and it's a, it's a big book. <laughs> it's not a small book. I know. <laughs> it's nice. It's the soft cover. Usually yeah. they have a hardback, huh? but I'm, I actually they have prefer both. soft. They, they have both. I, I, have, I got hardbacks and yeah.
1: uh, the softback is this uh, one with a good deal. What's happening there?
0: It's nice. It has many color images. And of course, in a book called Image Thinking, uh, images are quite important. <laughs> yes.
1: You know how many there are?
0: No. 100. Exactly. 100 images. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you say somewhere that the images, they're not just illustrations, but they're, they're part of the argument, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think this book, uh, I, I read it with great pleasure. I also, as I went along, I started to get uh, more and more nervous for <laughs> this this conversation, because how are we going to do justice to this? I guess the first thing to say is that people should read it. Yes. And the subtitle is Art Making as Cultural Analysis. And I'm not, I I love art, but I'm not by any means an expert or or anything like that. And I really got a lot out of this book from a philosophical perspective, social perspective. And um, yeah, so maybe let's start with the first question. Who, Who did you write this book for? (laughs) <laughs> That's always a very difficult question.
1: I think I wrote it for uh, a very um, many different audiences: for people interested in art, for people interested in uh, cultural analysis, of course, but also for um, more generally interested people who are um, who wonder about, you know, why I do this. Because when I first started to make films, a lot of people said, hey, she's switching careers. Oh, that's okay. She's written enough books. She can now pursue a hobby. And that really upset me because that's not at all how I see it. So I wrote it really for people to understand what I was about, making films as cultural analysis. And this was, uh, so this was my my target audience were the people who did not believe that I could be do both and integrated. So the people who, who thought either I was a bad artist, which some people in this country do think, uh, or I was uh, abandoning cultural analysis, which is not true. So I thought it would be good to clarify my endeavour, to clarify why I am doing this and what i hope to get people to understand so that's a sort of a very broad answer to your question i don't it's not specifically for people in this or that field it is basically for people who can handle and can be intrigued by interdisciplinary uh, analysis
0: yeah that that's also the nature of cultural analysis. I think I remember yeah. uh, being in that in a master's program. There were uh, literary people in the group, artists, historians, mm. uh, media people, and we could all discuss the same things because we had this way of working, which we will get into a, li- a little bit later. But working with concepts.
1: Yes, yes, that that is the the entrance into
0: interdisciplinarity in my view, yes. So I noticed as I read the book, the book, the main text is about 400 pages that I, because also I had to read it kind of quickly. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Normally I would take much more more time with this, but I noticed that some of the parts were drawing my attention more than others because they started to be in dialogue with, with things that I have been thinking about myself. Or mm. with topics that we have discussed on the on the podcast, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. so
0: um, I thought, okay, instead of trying to give an overview of the whole book, we can f- kind of focus on uh, on those. And yeah, in figuring out how to digu- discuss the book, the image of concepts as as gifts came to me. Mm-hmm. We're both academics, but I think many people are interested in topics over a longer period of time in their lives Mm -hmm. and to understand that or to be in dialogue with that, or to even see it, they use concepts. Yes. And uh, a concept is like maybe a gift that you can unwrap. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes somebody can give you a concept and you start to look at the world in a different way. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and, and those concepts like a gift, a good gift, stays with you many years <laughs> yeah. and, and it kind of changes and it travels with you. So this is one. I also had another metaphor, which is I think I got it from Deleuze and Guattari about uh, uh, concepts as friends. Yes. I had I have a working ty- title for a book I'm working on, and it's called Some of My Best Friends Are Concepts. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> so, yeah. yeah.
0: So I just wonder how you, how you connect to this, because you've been working with certain concepts for a long time. And are they just kind of like your instruments and your tools for doing analysis? Or do you kind of develop a relationship with them, an effective yeah. relationship? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. They are never just tools because that's a sort of an instrumentalist view. I think that concepts have much more to offer than being a hammer or you know whatever tools you expect. I think the, the, the point, and then in that sense, your idea of concepts as gifts is, is uh, excellent. It is something that comes to you because some teacher tells it, or you read it somewhere, or you, you encounter it, it comes up in your own mind, and then you have something something that you feel you can interact with. I think the point of the uh, Deleuze and Guattari uh, about the concept as friends also makes total sense. A friend is not a, a lover. There is this book by Lorraine Code, a wonderful uh, feminist uh, Canadian uh, philosopher who writes about the uh, a little bit in critique of Plato's idea of the the teacher as lover and all the exclusions that that brings a lot about and she says the lover is, is sort of committed and there's nothing more they can do while the friend is can be critical, the friendship can develop, it's, it's all more flexible and so she uh, comes up with a whole list of features of friendship that make friendship uh, more uh, interesting and and relevant for working in the cultural field than the, the metaphor of the lover. So the, for me, that's both the gift and the friendship are good concepts, a good idea, or metaphors for concepts. And you could even say a good friend brings a good concept, a good gift mm. to your birthday party or whatever you are celebrating. Because the gift, uh, the best gift is the gift that the other person, the addressee, the the receiver, uh, is happy with and can unwrap, as you say. I think use would be a little too much instrumentalizing it, but deploy in, um, I would say, in an interaction. For me, the concept and the cultural object and the analyst are a triangular relationship. And that triangular relationship has these features that Lauren Code uh, mentions. Uh, It's never stable, it goes in many directions, it develops, it's uh, it's flexible. And that is, uh, I think, what a good concept and a good analyst and a good object should do together. This for me is, is the point of concepts.
0: Yeah, I like the t- title of one of your papers. It's called Working with Concepts. Mm-hmm. So it's like working with them, like you would work with people or with working yeah. with wood could be another title, you know. You <laughs> right. you're in dialogue with it, it resists and, and everything yeah. like that. Yeah, that's nice. So in, in the book, you discuss many or most of your your films and and installations and and some other art pieces. Mm -hmm. And those are things that you've been working with for a long time. Like I think the concept of trauma or performativity. I remember, so the first, your first book that I read was Travelling Concepts in the Humanities. I think it's from 2002. So I think that one starts with performance and performativity.
1: I have it here. I don't think ah, so. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it's the first chapter. I think it is later. But it is...
0: Um, or maybe it starts with concept.
1: It starts with concept and yeah. image, mise-en-scene, ah, okay. framing, and then performance and performativity. But it is a very central
0: uh, concept. Yeah, and, and of course, image and, and all those. And and now you, you write about them again. And you've... After, a traveling concepts in the humanities before, too, but after, I think mostly you've been working with films to develop that. So it's like it's it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's great because I can come back to it again and again. But how long have you been working on this book?
1: Oh, the book, it's hard to say because I, I actually, the actual writing of it, like preparing the manuscript for the publisher was very quick. That was during the COVID lockdown. But I've been working on the films, and I had written articles about the films, and I've been reworking that in this book. So it's not a book that I just started to write one day and then finished. Uh, but it was rather quick because I had these um, ideas about the films. It really helped me to understand my own film work much better. So that it it, it was it was rather uh, quick.
0: It's quick, but it's about a long stretch of time and, yes, and a wide range. Yeah. yeah. So then why of all the concepts that you could have chosen, for instance, memory or something like that, why, uh, why image thinking as the title and the focus?
1: Right. That's because it's not so much a concept as it is um, a way of working what I wanted to uh, address with that. the, to see, this is really interesting. I was first thinking of thought images. I thought my films are producing thought images. And then I thought that's not quite right. If I started to, to study the, the literature on that. And uh, then uh, my partner actually came up with the idea of image thinking as the, the reverse. And so this is not as a concept that I propose it, but as a method, as a way of working in the sense that I wanted to address the idea that you can do your thinking through, with and in images. And so that thinking and images are not separate. It's not that you think about images. And it's also very important to uh, to address the idea that you learn from images and not about them so much. I, there's no analysis of classical painting or anything in the book. It's, it's, it's really that the thinking and the making go together. They go hand in hand. And in that sense, it is not so much, uh, as I said, it's not so much a concept, but it is rather... Uh, a way of working in which the visual or the audiovisual, in this case, uh, gets the chance to, to interact with the thought in development. And so the thinking, as I could have called it visual thinking, mm-hmm. but that would be too, a little limiting and so I th- I felt image thinking was a little more open. And uh, th- this is why I chose that as the focus. So it's not as a concept that I propose it, but as a method.
0: And could you, because maybe this is getting a little bit abstract for <laughs> listeners, could you give an example of maybe to, an example of what you mean by a thought image? Uh, because you mentioned that before, an example of what image thinking could look like and of course we'll get more into it but well
1: image thinking is thinking with as if hand in hand with images and so the thinking develops in your interaction with the images with making them with seeing them you know in filmmaking you have the, the, the filming but then you have the editing and you have all these processes after effects that make the Make it denser and denser and for me the uh, the well let's say thinking about or you know, writing about images would be taking an image and coming up with a concept and put the two together as a, the the concept would almost be a grid that defines the image and i'd have done that in my earlier work on Rembrandt and Caravaggio and contemporary art. And I have done that and I'm not against it, but I thought that I was really looking for something that could explain how the thinking and the making go together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that has really been very uh, revealing. And that's what I try to uh, to write down, write down in the book. An example is difficult to give, but you could say that... Um, One of the things is this chapter seven with the women, the the mothers of migrants, uh, where you can see that the the installation form, because the form of presentation, of course, is also part of the of the whole process. The installation form where you put the, the the images on television screens or monitors in a living room setting, which is an intimate setting. And that brings in the intimacy that the women have been, you know, have had and have been deprived of by the departure of of their child. And so this was uh, a way of realizing in the installation. And here I take the installation itself as an image. The installation made it possible to give the women not only the voice that they deserve and and that they take but also uh, the place in the home where they can feel at home. But there is a gap, there is a lack, the childhood has left. And that realization is, is I think, very much uh, a consequence of the, the kind of image thinking that this project entailed.
0: So in, in that case, the, the installation is a, the focus uh, when we speak about migrants, the focus mm-hmm. we we have images in mind, which in in the Netherlands maybe people in um, I don't know what they call them migrant centers. Yeah, yeah. People in, in tents. People trying to climb on the trains. Yeah. But your installation is not about those migrants. But the idea, I mean, it's very for the onlicht, how you say, very obvious that. Those migrants leave home and they leave family behind and they leave their mother behind. Yeah. But you never hear anything about the mothers, no, and so no. the installation is just yeah. um, them speaking. But they they just speak. There, I think there are some questions, but not that many, right? So they're no. also in their living room speaking to the yes. camera. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, the idea is that I put the, the whole setup was that they choose a space in their own homes so the living room or the dining room or a, a space that they feel comfortable in then the other person the interlocutor which can be the child who has left and is coming back for holidays or or the husband or a daughter you know a daughter-in-law the the interlocutor sits uh, behind the camera so you don't see them and then I switch on the camera and I leave the room so that the intimacy is maximized. That the, between this mother and, and the, uh, the other person that's close to her, uh, there is a real intimacy. And of course they know it is for a public uh, presentation, but I always promise that I will not put, on, put it on the internet. Because then you encourage a sort of zapping attitude that I didn't think would be uh, discreet and modest in relation to them. So I do I, I promised that, and I also always showed the tape after the half hour of of filming. And I said, "Is it okay to show this?" Because I did not edit it. This was my point. I didn't want to edit it. I wanted to really relinquish all the power, as much of the power as as you can, that that filmmakers have. And so I asked, is it okay that you cry, for example? Because many have moments that they cry. Yeah, and then one woman said, well, who wouldn't cry if your child leaves? Of course, I cry. There's nothing shameful about that. And that is a sort of moment that I thought was really compelling to realize what's happening in the lives of these families. And so, yes, it's true that you never ever, because I've researched it, huh? I really try to find literature on the mothers, nothing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: nothing. And so that's why I decided to do the project. I thought it was time that these mothers got to speak. And, uh, and so, and the other thing about that project, and that's also to do with that image thinking, but then another aspect of it, is that you hear in because in this living room there are like seven or nine different mothers speaking, and you hear all these different uh, languages or dialects. You know you can, and the interesting thing is that as a listener you sit in the armchair you you're riveted because it is really fantastically intimate, and then you you begin to realize the difference between let's say Palestinian and North African Arabic, same language, but a different accent. And that is something that you didn't know. So you learn to listen. And that's another aspect of it, that learning to listen and learning to look and learning you know, to be with the women, is,
0: is I think is important. And something that we spoke about last year, uh, taking time because you create this living room sitting setting
2: mm-hmm. that
0: invites you to sit down and, and get comfortable and not just look five minutes, but actually no. spend maybe a half an hour or more there. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a, another very important aspect.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, what? So maybe one thing to take away here from is that it's image thinking is not just something that happens in your head but it involves material world and others <laughs> in yes, the setting thanks. different media as well. This yeah. is an installation in a, can be in a museum, but there's also television and audio. Yeah, uh, It mm. involves you to sit there. It involves some connection, some, some feeling, some effect.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: The, it's very effective because you realize, you know, the, the women are very outspoken about, their grief and they're missing the child and all that. So you realize what happens in the life of these women. And that is, I think, an important uh, acquisition of, of knowledge, of insight that the the visitor can get. And, and you're absolutely right that sitting there for a long time, which you do because there is this either monologue or conversation. There, there are some questions sometimes and uh, no, there was one case where the 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 son who had left uh, was actually a bit aggressive to his mother, and saying, "Well, why why did you not let me go, or why did you try to withhold me?" And it's 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 uh, really very gripping to be present in that situation. Yeah, which is why it's obviously important to play it back to the mothers and say, Are you okay with this? Because it would be very, very intruding if you didn't do
0: that. So in, in that setting, who is doing the image thinking of obviously how you explain it, you are doing it in creating that setting. But yeah. if I if I go in there, am I doing image thinking or also, also, also yeah.
1: yes, as a visitor also. And the visitor in that sense is like, you know, you could compare the visitor maybe to the students who is also, you know, engaged with what the teacher sets out to show and, and argue, uh, but that uh, the
0: you are also doing the image thinking. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll come let's come back to it later. Uh, I wanted to talk one thing which is also kind of out of self-interest because in the cultural analysis master like I said the traveling concept in the humanities was the starting point and in that book you outline a way of uh, doing interdisciplinary work in the humanities and I've kind of used that uh, ever since and uh, so I I published now sometimes in medical education and almost every article i i quote that book because it's so different from you know the normal way i think in many sciences the normal way is if you start to speak about let's say technology or reflection first you give the definition Mm -hmm. then okay you can discuss a little bit you can say people define it in different ways
2: Hmm. like
0: this like this like this and now i choose this definition and that's it And then you just do your research (laughs) and you don't talk about it anymore. Mm. Um, So the way I've used it is to, well, first, why I want to bring this up is because when I read image thinking, I realized something else about concepts, what can happen is that you, at one point, you think you know it, maybe like a friend again, at at Mm. one point, you think, well, I've known you for 10 years. Okay, (laughs) I I know Mm. who you are. But then at some point you realize, well, actually, I've been a little bit sloppy and (laughs) imprecise. And so now I read about traveling concepts again, which is also a concept. And I realized, oh, I have to kind of go back to it and and make it a little bit more precise. But I think Mm -hmm. it will also be interesting for people listening to this because it's, um, uh, it's a way in which you can engage with the things that... Keep you occupied in your life, uh, and that you want to understand, and that you and not just like uh, like you learn your driver's exam, you learn that, and then you pass your exam, and that's it. No, it's the things that keep coming back that you keep wanting to understand, and then those concepts can can help you with that. Yes, yes,
1: that's exactly the
0: point. I think the point of concepts
1: is precisely that that they they can help in that sense. They are friends, good friends and and gifts, but they have the capacity because they have this theoretical miniature theory in them. And so uh, when you use a concept or you you bring a concept to bear is the way I like to say it, on an object, uh, you allow the to to speak back, to say, no, 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 it's not quite that. Uh, which happens a lot, if you you really pay attention to your own quotations, for example, you cite something, if you then, uh, my rule is always after typing it up, the quotation, look back at the object and check if it really matches. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, so much the better because then you learn more. You learn something new. You learn something you didn't know. And so I'm uh, trying to encourage people to do that, to, to check that, that, that it works. But yes, concepts have a, a power to make you to open up uh, not just the objects, but to open up ways of engaging with the objects. And that's why I keep saying it's a triangular relationship between the analyst, the object and the concept. It's not just one to one.
0: Yeah, so let's let's get a little bit into how that works, because it's already quite different from when people say concepts. In most fields, they think about it like from cognitive psychology, like ideas, a synonym for mm. ideas. Uh, again, ideas in your head. Mm. Or actually designers can use concept as well, like uh, a concept is like a template uh, for something.
2: Yeah.
0: But also in philosophy, concepts are usually kind of immaterial things, right? Mm-hmm. Or not even things. So maybe like, oh, I can I can tell you how you. <laughs> well, I don't have to tell you because you are the one who explained that in the in the cultural analysis master, how you work with concepts, and that was such an eye opener for me because you had a. I'm looking for the English word, like a, yeah. How do you say that, Kartabak like a an index
1: and they, oh index cards yes. index
0: cards yeah yes. And people don't have that anymore but if you work in a marketing agency those are where your clients are alphabetized yeah. and everything right. so you have the concept of performativity is with the p and yeah. another, <laughs> concept, right. another concept is somewhere else and um do you, do you want to explain that a little bit or shall i tell you what i remember from it
1: Tell me first and then I'll respond to that.
0: Yes. So, because I, at that point, I came from philosophy. So, of course, we speak about concepts a lot. And I think, you know, people listening to this are used to that. There's a concept, I don't know, trauma or fear or, or whatever, something you try to understand. But you said, okay, what you do is you take one card and one card is one concept. You write down the concept on the card. And on the front of the card, you write in pencil. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> Your I don't know if you probably didn't call it definition, but what hmm. the description of the concept? Let's say, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Like, but the whole thing is that this will change. You will update it. Yeah. And on the back of the card, you write quotations and and references to sources where you read that. So yeah. as a result, this is a living. I I still have it here. I don't have it no I don't know where it is but I have it here somewhere it keeps updating and the thing is that you have this with you and then uh, maybe first you read the book about art where you get the concept but then you watch a movie a Hollywood movie can be something else but then it you say hey I see the concept there as well yeah those two things will be on the card and after some time well if you want to do something with the concept you take out the concept card and yeah, it's there for you. You can use it. And uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: So there is no no rigidity, no fixity in the relation between the concept and what it means. There is no, and that's why I sort of resist uh, definitions. Those definitions are attempts to say this is that. And I think it is more useful, more productive to say this concept harbors these theoretical thoughts that if you bring it to bear on an object can release from the object the potential that they have to that it has to uh, to signify and to be important and to effectively touch you so in that sense i think it is true that uh, definitions are not the best road to uh to to knowledge i think they tend to become too rigid and that is really not what the concepts should do that's why i have been working on this idea of traveling concepts the concepts travel not only from this country to that country in different contexts but also through time and through different objects and in in this interaction with different objects. And that is the way that concepts stay flexible and help us to stay flexible ourselves.
0: And I think that is really important. One of the examples you give somewhere is hybrid or hybridity. Hybridity, yes. It comes from uh, biology. Yes. But now probably people think about hybrid cars, but you can. Yeah. Hybridity also is kind of an, it also kind of gives you an image, right? If you yeah. say the word hybrid, you you could probably think of, oh, I could call this hybrid something, yeah, happening together. It's not one thing, it's not the other thing. Uh, it may be evolving as well.
1: Yeah, so a kind of interweaving of different things. Yes, yeah. uh, that could work. There's also a lot of critique of the of the term hybrid because it becomes... It has been used, but that's not now so much. But it has been used in a sort of racist sense as um, Mm. uh, people are not pure if they are of different races or have backgrounds in different races. And that is, of course, a horrible sense that we don't want to use. But the hybrid as a way of, of intermingling, of interweaving, Things coming from different sides that could be very useful,
2: yes, mm.
0: so we have maybe if we have a spectrum on the one side we have maybe definitions mm-hmm. and then some are the travelling concepts, and then you say so these are kind of mini theories mm-hmm. and then maybe on the other side we have full full fledged theories or maybe even ideologies like a the theory of relativity or a psychological theory or something like that. Yeah. So we've spoken about how already how a concept, a traveling concept is not a, a definition because it's kind of open. It, it, uh, it can evolve. It can start to mean different things. Also, you say somewhere that the whole point, the whole point of a definition is that we all speak about the same thing. Yeah. So in in those articles I talked about, I want, okay, define it, because then we all know we uh, spoke about that. Well, I do research on reflection (laughs) in medical Mm -hmm. education. So, So some people say, well, reflection, there are many definitions, it's hard to define. And that's a big problem. So we have to find like kind of you get these monster definitions that try <laughs> to include everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... And we try to say no. Actually, that's the that's that's the great thing is that on the one hand, yes, you you need something to be able to talk about it. It's not just a word, mm-hmm. but it's also the degree to which you know you don't agree about it. Yes. So it's kind of a common ground that you can yeah speak about it.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's really crucial to understand that the concept, the the flexibility of the concept doesn't make it imprecise. It shouldn't, but it can make it uh, flexible and so that it can can be brought to bear on different contexts, different framings, and then you have uh, another way of looking at what you are studying. And I think that is important to do. And for that, it is necessary to not make definitions on the sort of this is this, but uh, this concept implies includes these aspects of the theoretical background that it is addressing, and then you can be precise and multiple and flexible.
0: So and so and on the other side, it's not a full fledged theory, right, I think. I'm trying to think of something, I'm thinking of maybe transference, where people would think about psychoanalysis.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe that's already a theory. Yeah.
2: Uh,
0: if, you, if you say transference and people think about this in the context of psychoanalysis, that's not so much more a traveling concept, I guess. Or it, I'm trying to think of something which, or let's say, relativity. In, that's in physics. That's not in the humanities. But relativity, okay? People think about, oh, you have quantum or relativity. Well, those are very, mm-hmm. they're also very precise. They're also very open, but they're massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole story. So yeah. it's somewhere in between a definition and and uh, a whole theory.
1: Yeah. No, it can of course never be a whole theory of encompassing everything, but it can be a, a help. to to get a grip on complex thoughts, that you want to keep complex and still get, still understand. And I think that's that's where the concepts are most useful. And I remember when I developed, the first concept that I developed was focalization in my narrative theory. Uh, I had not invented it, it came from Girard Jeannette, but he used it in a way that I was critical of. And what I wanted to do was make that concept a kind of narrative um, strand in the narrative where uh, it wasn't just the person speaking, as in my chapter here on, on who speaks the documentary, not just the person speaking, but the person perceiving and conveying that perception to the reader as embedded in the narrative. And in that sense, vocalization became uh, absolutely crucial for my work on narrative, totally crucial because I made it a concept that could uh, account for the responsibility of the vision that you get presented. Well, the the way it had been first offered was uh, sort of, it was just a typology. And you have zero focalization. No, you cannot have zero focalization. There's always focalization in any narrative. And so this is how I took over a concept that was in the making, but it never got really done. And I took it and I made it into a concept that can be helpful and flexible at the same time.
0: Could we use that, for instance, in... um What's the title of that installation that we just talked about with um, Oh, migrants? Nothing is Missing, Nothing is Missing, okay. Nothing is Missing. Yeah, <laughs> which is a nice title. It's,
1: yeah, <laughs> it was it, very
0: yeah.
1: ironic, of course. But yeah. the woman, the mother of the migrant says this. Yeah, He says nothing is missing because he has bread to eat. And that's all that the human being needs. And so she was satisfied that her son was eating. Well, so yeah. is
0: that is that an example of focalization? That uh, of course this installation didn't come out of nothing, but it came into a culture where we speak about migrants in a different way. Yeah. Uh, like uh, they're trying to profit. They're you know yeah. Yeah. A completely different way. Is that also kind of a focalization? How we speak about migrants. Yes, in general, think, yeah,
1: yeah, that could be a case of of focalization, and the clash between how we we in the West talk about them as people who are just you know taking our wives and taking our cars and our money uh, is is totally completely incompatible with the way that, that these mothers talk about their children who left because they needed to. And the need is is very different from that that attitude of uh, of profiting that we attribute often to migrants. Not all of us, and not all the time, but there is a problem in the vision that we have. So
0: these are focalizations, yes. So maybe this is something that because when when people are debating this about saying while well, we talk about migrants or it can be other issues, but let's say migrants one-sided usually what they say is uh, we need different stories so we need different stories to be told but maybe focalization is then adding something to that it's not just about a different story because if the same person so maybe in this case it's journalists telling different stories but maybe they're all speaking from their own perspective yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, perspective was the older word for the same thing. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. No, absolutely. And and it's it's so it's we need more stories, but it's not the stories as such. We need more visions, we need other visions, and we need to be able to, to be effectively implicated in the visions of others. And then we can
0: get closer to what's happening to people. Mm-hmm. Before before we move on, do you have any insight for how people who are maybe not academics can work with concepts?
1: It's difficult to generalize about that, but I think that uh, I, I would think or I would hope that uh, the concepts should be clear enough to allow people to work with them. And I have to say, when I was just a very beginning scholar, beginning in narrative theory, I did an, an, uh, an experiment with a 10-year-old child of the primary school and tried to explain to her my concepts of narrative theory to see if that could if she could get that. And the amazing thing that happened is her grades for her essays. Her grades went up to to the ceiling. She suddenly got the best grades in the class because she was able to complicate the sort of the narrative structure. And that was because of we had been talking about it. I didn't use the terms, but I just said, let's if if we read this, who is looking here at this boy? And then she was able to analyze that, and that made it possible for her to come up with much more interesting um, you know, essays and texts that she was to write. So this, this was a really good experience. And I did that because I wanted to know if these concepts could work without the term, the terminology. Because, of course, for a lot of people who, come not, who are not academics, the terminology can be very off-putting and think, what is this focalization? What the hell can that mean? But if you explain it in a way that makes it sort of totally plausible and even logically indispensable, then they can work with it. Absolutely, I think that is possible. And it's not about who has the best terminology. The terminology is just a a kind of abbreviation to say something quickly, but the, 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 the content of the concept is the you know this unwrapping of the gift is what does that help us to understand in the cultural objects that we are looking at or reading
0: and in that sense it does work for me concepts are very visual to me as well and they move (laughs) (laughs) so well one example which will probably be visual to everyone is constellation yes uh, which is one of my favorite concepts and i assume you notice, but Adorno uses it also to describe Mm -hmm. concepts. So he has this beautiful quote. I could quote it literally, but he says that you're trying to understand something, an object. Mm -hmm. And then you have these concepts and these concepts move around this object. um, Yeah, to unlock it, like safety deposit box. And it opens not in response to one number, one key, but to a combination. Yeah. And this can change as well. So, this constellation, which needs to be moving for you to open something in the object, he doesn't say you then you understand the object. No. But it's like a door opens, you can see something. It gives you a different way of access, which access is for me one of my other favorite concepts because it's where ontology and epistemology meet. Yeah. For something. Yeah, for you to be there in your reality yeah. you need to have some kind of access to it and yeah. and it works the other way around for some uh, okay i'm getting on the tangent a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um but speaking of adorno <laughs> um i uh, that's what that was one surprise for me as well in reading your book is that you refer to i don't know if it's published as an essay in itself but it's the last chapter of negative dialectics uh, meditations of metaphysics and uh, the first part of that is called after Auschwitz. yeah okay. so that's one of the most or actually is the most haunting philosophical works i read mm-hmm. before i was still thinking well so this podcast is called life from plato's cave i was still thinking in terms of these kind of immutable eternal ideas mm. And this uh, uh, essay cured me from that, <laughs> um, because I also have a personal connection with, with the Holocaust through my family and my past. And uh, anyway, I spoke with this with your partner also about a year ago in the, in the episode mm-hmm. about trauma in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Oh, let me just ask first is because maybe that's what I read into it. What what does that mean? piece by Adorno mean to you?
1: You mean Adorno's caution that after Auschwitz, it is
0: barbaric. Yeah. To, to write poetry. Well, it's oh no, sorry, the not actually the I'm referring to the the essay which is called after Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, where he uh, well, as one part of it, he that's where he corrects this as well. Yeah, he, he takes says, it back. Yeah, it. he says for instance, so, first he said. It's barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz. And there he says, but you have as much right to make art as as a torture victim as to scream. It's not very (laughs) uplifting essay, but.
1: (laughs) No, no. But of course, the world is not very uplifting. And at that point, certainly not. I think it was very good that he did this. And the interesting thing is this whole discussion the Adorno against himself in a way Yeah. First, first saying no and then saying well that's not quite right i thought uh, first of all it's fantastic when a philosopher of his status is capable of of changing opinions and, and saying that but also the fact that he was uh, uh, really talking about reality about the reality of what has happened and, and what was still happening. Uh, that was, uh, for me, it was because philosophy is always a little, you know, I always wonder, what's it about? I know that you as a philosopher wouldn't like that, but I always have this doubt that philosophy has pertinence, relevance, but Adorno made it have relevance. And then of course, Deleuze also and other people, but the, the obviousness is not, there it's not obvious that philosophy is always about something real and in, in Adorno's case I think it is and he makes that very clear and he's very lucid in that and and I really admire him to to you know to be willing to say perhaps I was wrong saying this because and then he comes up with People who have been beaten up with rifles will have as much right to scream and to express themselves as other people. And that is, of course, totally true. And so his initial caution, you would think that an initial warning, it's barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz, uh, should be rejected. But no, this is the thing that was also very important and i think that the fact that he had two opinions that went the one against the other makes it even stronger because of course it is you cannot say it is barbaric barbaric is not an easy term anyway but uh, to to condemn writing no but enjoying poetry it's it's really about enjoying the beauty of art and literature after all this horror that would be what he calls barbaric but then that is not the answer to to everything and I think a philosopher who's capable of of changing opinions is uh, uh, is has my admiration the other one is Wittgenstein he also uh, you know had a sort of certainty at the end of the uh, Tractatus where he says of what one cannot speak one should keep silent and then later in a conversation with a colleague, he said, no, that was actually wrong of what one cannot speak, one can show. And of course, for me as a visual artist, that is absolutely crucial. And it was very important to, to realize that he had actually, in, in a sense, also like Adorno, uh, withdrawn his initial uh, you know, forbidding opinion and nuanced it.
0: Yeah, and then, he, he even thought at that point, point okay, now philosophy is finished, yeah. and he, he started working as a school teacher. I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. until he had this insight. Yeah. Yeah. No,
1: that was brilliant. Yeah.
0: So I, I, yeah, I, I very much connect to this, and especially to this, uh, this chapter of of Adorno, where he he does that. Even within the chapter, he's saying one thing. He's saying um, uh, a very strong opinion, but then he's saying exactly the opposite. And that keeps on happening, Yeah, but it's leading somewhere. So some of the things that he is struggling with, I think, is um, the relationship, like in in Plato's Cave, between something universal Mm. uh, and something particular or mundane. Mm. and what is that relationship between the two because it will be too easy to say as some other philosophers have said well we shouldn't talk about the universal at all anymore because we know wh- what it can lead to like ideology look at uh, the holocaust that's a, an example of of uh, totalitar- totalitarianism and the way a concept can yeah just take over everything yes but he didn't do that because he, he does talk as well about the universal. <laughs> mm. So he keeps them both, even they're both not perfect.
1: No, and it's very difficult to say this is universal. So I, you quoted me in your uh, questions here about saying something about the traveling concept. The traveling is the universal, yeah. not the concept. But the fact that concepts travel, that happens all the time. And in that sense, it would be universal. But it's also, you know, there's this other issue is about the uh, uh, universal being opposed to in the sort of binary thinking that I reject opposed to relativism. And to say, you know, it's either cultural relativism, every culture is different, we can judge, or it is universal and then we have to. And it's both wrong, of course, and the binary opposition between the two is particularly problematic, because you, nothing is universally valid, or nothing has this universal meaning. What happens what is universal is the fact that it is not universal, that is universal. Mm-hmm. So you could say that, uh, that the, uh, the sort of looseness, the, the, the need to make concepts, to consider concepts in their traveling, that could be the universal. And then there's this other thing, uh, another example that I use also in that seventh chapter about mothers, that motherhood is universal. Uh, yes and no, it is and it isn't. It is uh, you cannot say that this every culture the uh, motherhood has the same, you know, sentimental value and the same the same uh, affective uh, need and all that. But to say, oh, it's just normal that in Africa children die because there's not enough food and there is uh, all these insects. And no, that is making the relativism uh, like uh, totally unacceptable. It is not relativism can never condone something that we all know we have to reject. And if there is not enough food for children in Africa, it's not something we have to accept, but something we have to do something about. That's, it's so obvious that you cannot accept that. So in that sense, the universalism of motherhood is also a strategic uh, universalism. You have to believe in it. Otherwise, you're going to condone to accept something that's unacceptable. So this is another aspect of those terms.
0: So maybe this is a bridge to how you use abduction—not you don't—not <laughs> in the criminal sense, <laughs> but uh, abduction no. as as a logical uh, category. Yes. Adorno sp- speaks about historical events and and trauma, and you speak about artworks and everything, and that's why I find it especially interesting that you start talking about. Which is usually talked about as a domain of analytic philosophy, as, mm-hmm. as logic. And one of the things that that we do in logic is to relate a, a universal, like a rule, yes, to a case, something particular, yes. For instance, in in uh, induction, you make an observation, you make many observations, mm-hmm. and from this observation, you d- you discover a pattern, maybe yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Or from deduction, you start with a rule, a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. and like in medicine it works like that a lot yeah. yeah and then you do an experiment and then you know well this medicine works or this doesn't work yeah so those yeah. are induction and deduction yes but then you speak also about abduction I could could you explain that a little bit how that works with relating something concrete in particular like an artwork or something else with yeah. universal
1: I, I have i have I've written about this, but it's a long time ago. But abduction is, um, it's a sort of back and forth. You have a hypothesis, you check it out, then you come to the next step in the reasoning, in the logic. And that would be abduction, that sort of moving quality of the logic. And I think that is important as a way of, of avoiding the, the sterility in a sense of, deduction as you know hypothesis test hypothesis test or induction where you have so many cases that you never get to generalize enough about them and so abduction is a kind of in between sort of back and forth jumping back and forth between the uh, it's it's like the interaction uh, that it's it's always provisional but the 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 hypothesis opens up possible cases and possible uh, conclusions. And that is a good way of uh, of relating to generality and uh, <laughs> and particularity that you know because deduction is too much based on the general and induction too much on the particular. And abduction, I think, is this openness to both. you go from the one to the other and you go back and you go back and that movement is I think very
0: uh, appealing. yeah yeah, so that's the movement maybe we spoke about before as well, that if you want to work with universals, mm. then you have to you don't want to just get rid of them and think everything comes from the data or everything is, comes from the world. Mm. That you have to accept that is that the movement is part of that.
2: Yes. If it's fixed,
0: then it's not. Uh, it's uh, yeah. It's almost like I do Tai Chi. <laughs> that's, that's something my teacher. could say If uh, if <laughs> yeah. if, you, if it's fixed, then it's not uh, not working. Then, no.
1: As soon as it's fixed, you're you're locked up. Yeah. Uh, there's no more possibility to uh, to change and to move and to you know, be yeah. flexible. So yes, the, in that sense, abduction is a, is a great help as a, as a,
0: a logic. But it still so still sounds like it's okay. It's part of logic. Logic also has the let's say image of being very dry and everything. But I think well, you you speak about creative leaps and creativity and imagination yeah. yes. as part of this. So I was wondering, is abduction related to image thinking? Yeah, in a sense that it is a form of, um, of uh,
1: exercising the imagination. And in that sense, it comes close, but it's not image thinking is really about Im- making images. I, I use the verb imaging also, which is not the same as imagining. So imagining is, you know, you, you come up with ideas or thoughts or images, figures. Uh, and that is a very important faculty. I think imagination is totally crucial. But imaging is a way of giving an, a visual shape to an idea. And that is something in a sense more specific. And, and I think that is uh, a useful concept also, imaging as a verb, to uh, to give shape, to make shape. To give shape to something that would not otherwise have a shape, would otherwise be invisible. I think that is uh that's a sort of a possibility to to be more imaginative visually.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this connects to what we speak about a little bit later, maybe what you do with time uh yes. in, in oh, the yeah. book. Yeah um okay, so we're still talking about some of the themes that that Adorno addresses. Uh, This is, so this abduction is a way of of thinking and way of analyzing, but there's also another way in which you address this relationship between the singular and the universal in in your book, which again, it seems to be a theme, (laughs) migrants. Oh, yes. We've had many, yeah, images of migrants drowning here there seems to be something about about the media that we find something collectively very important and and horrifying but after a while yeah not anymore so much mm-hmm. I, I think we're noticing this now with the with the war in ukraine yeah we had it as well with corona in the beginning when people were clapping for the healthcare workers yeah mm-hmm and there seems to be i don't know there's probably some people thinking who thought about this but at one point uh yeah we cannot hear it anymore we cannot see it anymore so this is a problem because it's universal it keeps happening and at the same time it's very particular because these are real people that yes. are drowning that are trying you know trying to cross uh to a better life mm-hmm. So you discuss in chapter 9, I don't know if I say it right, Palimpsesto. 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 Yeah. What does it mean? Palimpsest. That is a trace
1: of something be- that came before.
0: Ah okay, okay. And it's it's a artwork by Doris Salcedo. Salcedo, yeah. Salcedo, okay. <laughs> and so you describe how you Spend many hours there and how it made you gave you an insight about i'm already <laughs> struggling with my language because that's your point so when you left that artwork something had changed and you describe how this had something to do with yeah our relationship with the victims of this strategy but you say that this this artwork is not was not showing you this or telling you this but it was doing it.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, could you explain that? And people, of course, don't know what the artwork looks like. Maybe you could yeah. explain this as well. No,
1: the, that's a difficulty, of course, but there have been books published about it. But the—the the, what she's doing in this enormous plaza in the uh, Palazzo, Palacio de Cristal in Madrid, uh, she had put down slabs of a meter 20 long. and and 19 centimeters, I don't know exactly uh, why. And those slabs of stone had been designed and made to not absorb water. And uh, in those, she had carved letters as a sort of uh, low relief. And that low relief uh, was readable and the letters composed names first names of people and uh, then after there was this temporal thing and you wanted to talk about time also there was this temporal thing that um, at some point you see a very very slowly a drop of water almost walking towards the letter the, the carved out letter and then another one and then another one and a little faster and in the end the letters were filled with water, but the water was not being absorbed. It was just like almost con- convex a little bit and uh, shiny because it's water and the sun was shining It's a palace, okay, it's a glass palace. Uh, so you could see the, the sun shining on these letters. And uh, what happened then is that we then only then realized that below those carved letters but a little on the side like a double exposure kind of situation there were also letters but those were not carved but they were made in black sand so the sand and the and the water letters were in uh, almost in competition you saw the le- the black letters and you could read those names and you saw the, the water letters and you could read the names of those. And these were victims of uh, you know people who drowned in the Mediterranean uh, because you know the ships were were uh, attacked or whatever. there's always something cruel behind this. People had drowned in the Mediterranean. and the fact that there was sand and water, Of course, was also a medium, an intermedial uh, um, presentation of too much sand and too much water. Or not enough drinkable water, but too much seawater. And that's how the people died. So she has collected these names and the names you immediately recognize Arabic names, but uh, she has collected those names from the archives of the people who have drowned. And the uh, the movement of the letters, the, the water letters going so slowly, and then after two or three minutes, they would withdraw. There was a mechanism underneath the stone slabs that uh, made the water recede. And then it came again, and it receded again. And it is so riveting because you want to, first of all, you want to see it happening. The names are coming so it's like the people are coming it's it's like the film um uh, like kind e arena the film by uh, Anita Inaritu, where you also see the people coming but here you see the names coming and so in a sense that is doing something she doesn't show people she doesn't show the misery and the hunger and the thirst she only puts down the names so she is not telling the story. We know that it is uh, what that these people are reminiscences. That's why she calls it palimpsesto, uh, traces of uh, the dead, the drowned in the Mediterranean. But what is uh, what she is doing is making it happen that awareness. It's, she's not making the drowning happen. She's making our awareness happen. In that sense, she's doing it. And what was so incredible during the, uh, uh, I was there a long time, and as I said, I was there hours and hours, that uh, some people were very careful because you could only walk on the floor, and these letters were on the floor, so there was no way to avoid them. So either you could uh, carefully step over them, or some people just casually step onto them not not be, being aware of what they are doing and that difference i kept looking at i kept looking at how pe- some people just so so almost nasty to just step on those letters like killing them again and and other people are very careful and respectful and that difference was uh was a really uh, important moment of realization what art can do and But art can only do it if people collaborate with it. And the people who just step on the letters, they don't collaborate. They just look and they chat with each other and they go away after five minutes. But the the difference between those two attitudes for me was very, very important.
0: What is it that made you spend many hours there? Because... I mean, I can imagine that after 30 minutes, you've seen a few cycles of this, you've mm. maybe thought about oh, what is happening, what is, why did you make this, what is it doing with me? So what is it that makes an artwork so, do you keep seeing new things or yeah. is there something else happening?
1: Well, one of the things that happened was that it was over this whole long floor, the floor. Yeah. It was a very large space. And somehow, I once I had understood what the names meant and why they were there, I had to see them all. And I had to see them all fill up and recede and fill up again. And so I had to see them all. I went through this whole plaza to, uh, uh, to, to be there with each individual because one of the things that this work does is... Uh, this is about particular and universal it is saying every person who died is one person it's individuals it's not a mass and and that was a very important thing to uh, to to almost to to not only to realize but to participate in honoring these people and in saying you count and you count, and all that together made it. Uh, almost went. The time went by without me realizing i have been there so long.
0: Yeah. So we're, when we're talking about time, you've yeah the time went by quickly. Time is uh, relative in that in that sense. Mm. Um, and and it also relates to another concept that you write about contemporaneity. Yes. Being together in time. So we are together in time. Yes. With those migrants. Yes. And, and the mothers of those migrants who are leaving behind right now. Yes, absolutely. But absolutely. we're not together with them. Yeah. I, I spoke with Dominic Patman, and I think that's episode 10. One of the things that he said is that the, the we is missing mm-hmm. in, in this time that we live at the moment. Mm-hmm. So there's no... Uh, yeah, collective is a difficult word to say, yeah, but there's no we, we, yeah. us in the migrant, it's us and them.
1: Yeah, that us and them remains, uh, that's the greatest uh, fallacy, the greatest mm. problem that us and them, and we are safe and they are dying, and that's totally unacceptable, of course. But it's not so much the we, I would say, but cont- I, I, I've been working on the concept of contemporaneity, and I called it uh, exhibition hyphen ism. So exhibitionism, but as exhibition as the ism, as the state that in which we can be together, contemporary. con means together and temporary in time. So we are together in time in an exhibition. If the exhibition, and this is one of my obsessions, if the exhibition allows it by providing seating to take time with the artworks and with other visitors. And I have experimented, maybe I talked about that in the previous uh, blog already, but I have made an experiment in Oslo in the Munk Museum with uh, uh, providing seating. And I insisted on it. I said, there has to be seating because people need the time. And they need to be encouraged to take to give the time, because if you don't have seating, people are after half an hour, they, they have back problems and knee problems and they leave. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the best of, of the museums today that there's never there, there are benches in the middle of a very wide uh, gallery. But then you, you when you sit on the bench, you cannot see the works. And what I did in the Munch Museum in Oslo was to make the benches very close to to the wall on which the paintings were uh, hanging low. So you were on eye level with the paintings and and with the uh, videos also. But with the paintings was the, the primary point. And that eye level made it possible to see things that people had never seen before. Even people who go to that museum all the time. And one one artist friend said, I, I've seen this painting at least 20 times and I've never seen that little man behind the, bin, the curtain that you see when you sit there. And that is the whole point of seating. And I have been trying to make this a, a policy and to talk to people about it, but the museums don't seem to seem to follow suit and they don't do it which is really a loss. No, I think uh, uh, taking time and giving time, which is really the same thing, is uh, totally
0: essential. I guess it relates to even maybe to the discussion we had about definitions, but also about universals. I think one thing about universal is that you think you've seen it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: or you've studied something once and you think you've understood it. And that's, that's it. That's where it stops. And then it stops uh, moving. Yeah. And I think this, the same, uh, what, when you speak about exhibition, I think about spending time in nature. Yeah. I relate to that. Just instead of, Oh, let's go for a walk or go for a run. Yeah. The moment you sit down, it can be anywhere in a, in a park or in a forest. Or it can be in the city as well. It's just mm. when you stop moving, you see how much <laughs> how
2: Move much is carry. moving,
0: and I think that's one of the. I guess that sounds very Heideggerian, but it starts times start to reveal something. Yes. To you, but but you, I think also many times you have to go through something: boredom or being in a hurry. Mm. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a um, how do you say that fixed thing but the moment you sit down somewhere all these things start to come up yes yes and then of course depending on where you sit something can start speaking back to you and if you're sitting in in a kind of an environment designed by someone else Mm -hmm. uh, like the artwork you talked about that yeah something can happen there
1: yeah no absolutely something happens (coughs) and it is not I mean, I keep saying this. It's not only because older people get tired. Because also young, I saw a a Mm 14-year-old girl sitting on a bench in the museum. When I was there after the opening, I was watching how people were behaving. And I saw this girl, and she was sitting there and sitting there. She was just staring at one painting. And then I was called for a meeting. And after an hour, I came back. And the same teenager was sitting two benches further. So she yeah. had she had done two benches in an hour. <laughs> now that says something. Right? Yeah. And you're right that you have to go through something like a first moment. What am I doing here? Why am I sitting here? But it comes very quickly. If you really look, you... I, very quickly taken in by what you see. And then then it it works.
0: Then maybe we can go to the other side of the spectrum, because here we're talking about something that you would not normally spend so much time with, and you spend time with it and and something happens. Yeah. Um, On the other side, we have things that we would rather forget Mm-hmm. but they stay with us, mm-hmm. as in the case of trauma, which is something that also you've been working on mm-hmm. uh, for a very long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So also because I've spoken to him uh, before in, in an earlier episode, Ernst van Alphen, and his essay, Symptoms of Discursivity. Yeah. Uh, you bring it up in the, in the book as well. And I wonder if you could talk about how this, this influenced your art making, but this, did it also influence how you analyze art?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question because uh, he developed that in a context in a seminar that we were having in the US uh, in interaction. So we were constantly uh, together, talking together about this. So the whole thought, that, the whole idea that trauma is a uh, stops time. Makes it impossible to continue, and uh, therefore makes narrative impossible. Uh, he, I think, his article I cited a few times because I think it's very, very clear and convincing. It's the best thing on this issue that I know: trauma and narrative as incompatible, and why. And he gives examples from Holocaust testimonies and, and literature and. He, he but he makes it very clear that trauma and narrative cannot work together and this was for me i've learned i've learned that lesson but we developed it together in a sense uh, but i've learned it also in my analytical work when i was starting to do the don quixote the don quixote project which I did in 2019 in the end, but I have started much earlier. And the whole notion, and I, I thought it was so incredible that this novel, which is a masterpiece, the whole world knows it. It's like the world's number one bestseller after after maybe the Bible and the Koran. Uh, this novel is, in fact, unreadable because it is repetitive. It has all these insertions. And, poems and texts and all sorts of stuff. But it is basically unnarratable because the main figure is traumatized. And that's, he never says that. It's never explicit. But and I learned that from that article on symptoms of discursivity. Uh, he is incapable of narrating what happened to him. And there is one scene that we made where you can see him failing to narrate, where he's just, and the scene is called narrative stuttering. So you see him incapable. You see him trying and doing and making gestures and all that, and he cannot, and in the end, he bursts into tears because he cannot talk. He cannot tell. The narrative faculty is destroyed by the trauma, and that is a really... uh, Very useful insight also for the filmmaking, because I, you know, how do you make a film on the basis of a novel? That I mean, you you cannot make a film on Don Quixote. The book is way too big to do a complete, and no one has succeeded in doing it. Uh, But you can do something with that situation, and that for me was absolutely crucial. But in order to do that, I also had to analyze the novel and see where and why he had this incapacity to narrate. Because it is constantly, he's trying to to tell stories. This this figure, Don Quixote, is trying to tell stories. And he cannot.
0: And that is... the Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. That's the thing, because if you cannot narrate something, then the obvious thing would say, well, then don't. Go do something else, but he's incapable of. So someone in that in that uh, what you refer to, he's trying to say something. Yeah. But he doesn't say, "Well, sorry, I can't say it. I'll go do something else." You cannot stop trying; it keeps coming back. So you cannot leave it behind either.
1: No, and and uh, he cannot even realize that he cannot say it because the thing about trauma is that you cannot realize it. You're hit by it, but you don't remember it trauma is incompatible with memory
2: yeah
1: although we always think that trauma is a form of memory but no it's incompatible with memory so he cannot he doesn't realize what he wanted to say and he and that he cannot do it yeah so he keeps trying trying and the only thing that gives some relief is at the end of that scene when uh Sancho his uh servant uh embraces him and takes him in his or her arms. It's a woman who plays the role. So in our case, it's a woman, Uh, it's a her. But uh, she takes him in her arms and then she says, one day you will manage it. And that's the moment that he's not entirely alone. At that moment, he realizes he doesn't remember the trauma, but he does know he's not entirely alone. And that is the small consolation for him. It's a very moving scene.
2: Yeah.
0: There's a parallel with the scene about Descartes that you that we also talked about last time, mm-hmm. where he we don't have to tell the whole story, but he so someone is traumatized, they cannot uh, let's say express themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So then it's up to you to make a connection to go where they are
1: yeah right
0: basically right. yeah yeah and in order to do that because there's no you cannot use there's no method that's the whole thing there is no method there is no story there's no no way of making sense like someone uh, who went through something horrible you're trying you want to say the right thing or you want to say it will get better or you want to say let me know if i can do something for but you of course you say those things but they're not they're not they don't connecting bring... so yeah. Yeah. No. I think that's a very beautiful part about that, and and the other part is about the idea. Again, this is for me like very visual. Is that something is coming true, and a lot of times uh, this happens in art. Like maybe uh, Cervantes wrote this novel. Was maybe it was a healing experience for him as well, or at least something. Speaking Something of happened. yeah, Something some, happened. speaking of Adorno and, and uh, oh, writing art after trauma. Oh, what we did. That is was that my that? daughter. Oh, <laughs> oh, your daughter. Oh, my daughter hurt. I need. Oh. I hope she's not traumatized. But <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but Cervantes, yes, and this is actually in like two sentences. You can read it in the novel. Uh, Cervantes was. Uh, After the battle, uh, they had won, the Spaniards had won a big battle and they were going back to Spain celebrating and Rodrigo Cervantes and Miguel de Cervantes, the older Miguel is the writer, uh, were taken in slavery and were, were captured by corsairs and taken and sold in slavery in Algiers. And the most incredible thing, and I have to say this because it is so incredible, is that he, uh, the parents were not rich and they they wanted to redeem because it was a commercial thing. It was capitalism. Uh, They wanted to redeem their sons, but they didn't have enough money. And so at some point they had backed and backed and they had enough money for one. And because Miguel was the older son, they sent it to him. And what does he do? He gives it to Rodrigo and he says, you go. And so after, and this was after years, and in the end, he he got out by money from the church, but he got out after five and a half years. Now, just imagine that you for five and a half years, you don't know if you will ever get out, right? You don't know that. He didn't know that. And so it's an incredible story. And there is a beautiful book written by a Colombian woman, a literary historian, who has herself been captured by the FARC in Colombia and been held in the jungle for eight and a half months, which is not the same as five and a half years, but you don't know when you're there if you even survive. So this was someone who really understood the trauma. And she wrote a beautiful book about Cervantes and, uh, and this whole slavery situation. It was beautiful and very convincing and well-documented. This is a book that everyone should read who has an interest in the, the persistence of slavery. Because don't think that slavery is a thing of the past.
2: No.
0: It's not. Now, we talked about this a few episodes ago with Ian Partman about... Living, living with the past that you have not lived, but it's your past, and right. it's it can be a burden, and you have to do something with it. So you can, I don't know if that's correct to say that you're traumatized by something that you haven't personally lived through.
1: Well, you haven't, you haven't. You're traumatized by what happened to you, like it's it's been beating on your body but you cannot remember it. And in that sense, you cannot work through it. So you cannot get over it because you have no clear memory of it. Because the memory is part of what is being erased in the trauma. No, it's a, it's a horrible, it's a horrible uh, situation that happens to, to people and that we should be aware of. And the only way that people can be helped I've been mean, working on the I don't know if we talked about this already, the in the previous one, the film on Madness. I made a film on madness together with uh, Michelle Williams gamaker uh, a British uh, artist, but also together with the author of the book on which it is based, is a psychoanalyst of trauma. And she is uh, she is incredibly powerful in her way of treating, she's capable of helping people who are traumatized. But because she she changes a little bit the Freudian method uh, to make it more equal and it is uh, successful. She manages to get people out of the drugs, out of the hospital, back to work. Now, that is an amazing performance that is not easy to do. But she does it because she really goes with them. So there is there is a way in which that empathy can help, but it's no guarantee.
0: I I like how you write about this in the book also to illustrate image thinking. So she wrote a book. She had some images. She wrote a book. This book is very much uh, visual. Mm-hmm. As we talked about, uh, also with Mark Reinhardt, about Plato's allegory being visual, mm-hmm. even though it's a text, it's it's also an image. You read that book, which kind of conjured up images that you had yourself. That you then say, "Well, I had to make this <laughs> yes. film," which then also, um, of course, a film is. Uh, it's easy to say how they produce images. That if I see the film, I so there are all these Im- it's not one image. No, <laughs> there are many, many images. And it's also not the case that that it's um, uh, so the, f- the film we see is a copy of a copy of a copy of, of the image that the author of this original book had. No. But they somehow they were they're all there, they work together, it's it's one big happy mess. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah no, the great thing about uh, Françoise Davan, the author of the book is that she's completely open to the input that Michelle and I brought in and she uh, I was constantly worried that she would feel betrayed or that she would feel that the images were not appropriate for her uh, her memory of what she had done and seen because the book is based on basically on uh, fiction but also documentary of of treatments of analytical treatments but she was never Doing that on the contrary, she said, no, I feel the book has been enriched by the film. Mm. And that was, of course, a lovely thing to hear when you make a film. <laughs> Two years of work, work, work. And uh, it was lovely to hear that. It was fantastic. But she also has that generosity and that openness that makes it possible to, to work with her in a, in a constructive way. Because you often hear about people who have uh, difficulty and a film is being made based on a book. And they said, oh, no, that's not what I meant. But she never said that.
0: No, because it doesn't fit maybe the image they had. Of no, the
1: uh, yeah, that could yeah. be a reason. But she, no, she had her images and she knew that working with these images was working for the patients. And so different images could
0: also work. So maybe that that is the key term, that you were working with the book instead of trying to copy it or just show it.
1: Yes, absolutely. We were working with the book and through the images in the book. And it's true that at some point when we had finished the film, we were invited to present it to an association of what we now would call schizophrenic patients. But they don't call it that. They call themselves uh, hearingvoices.com. That's a a website. And there was like 200 people in this huge room. And we were presenting a film of two hours. And after that, and I was a little nervous. I thought, if these people don't like it, then there is some futility in this whole endeavor. And then after... The film was over, there was silence, and then a thundering applause. And after that, a woman raised her hand and said, If I had had an analyst like this woman, and Francoise was there, so she, she uh, in in the hospital, I would have been able to raise my own son who was sitting next to her. Mm. And of course, this was a very sad thing to say. She had not been able to raise her son because she was locked up in a hospital because she was schizophrenic, and that is uh, uh, something she could see how this would have worked for her. Yeah. approach would have worked for her, and that is. Uh, and then other people raised their hands, and there were all these stories, and so I was reassured that the film made sense.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it was lovely. So we've been talking about time, i have been talking about, but time gets very abstract and messy very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so you gave us an image for time, an octopus. Yes. Yeah, maybe maybe you would sell more books if you would call it the octopus of time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe I don't know.
0: <laughs> it's a very compelling image. Yeah. Why an octopus? It's kind of a mad image.
1: Yeah, it is. It is pretty mad. And uh, the the that chapter, I think it's chapter four or something. That chapter is uh, has a title. I think I have it somewhere here. Oh yeah, contemporaneity. Heterochrony, anachronism, for preposterous history. Those are the three elements of time. And the contemporaneity is like the body of the octopus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the heterochrony is the different tentacles that each have a different relationship to time. And then there is the, um, uh, you know, this sort of the, the cultural feeding, the, the second cups. On the tentacles, yeah. with which the octopus feeds itself from the culture in which it swims or lives or lives, and so that that was the idea of the octopus as a as a as an image, a metaphor. But also, the main point was that it has these different different tentacles, different feeding cups, different uh, temporalities. That it is a, an animal of multiplicity of plurality and that made it uh, the the best image
0: for this uh, <laughs> the best metaphor for time yeah it probably has a contradiction in itself Oh, uh, not, my, maybe... my
1: partner is bringing me a glass
0: of wine. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry, your daughter probably cannot do that.
0: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't drink anyway, so that's oh, okay. Oh, no, you don't. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the octopus is... Um, If you look at... Octo- I, I just think about this doc... I don't even know the title, but people have seen it about a beautiful documentary about the octopus and how intelligent they are oh i don't know i will send you the title yeah please do one thing i like about it is that an octopus is like an alien i can relate to cats or to dogs can kind of see oh how they are similar but the octopus is so different in form that you have to look where are the eyes where where is the brain and everything like that all right and so i I like this form of, because it has this tension between, on the one hand, the contemporaneity that we've already spoken about. We all live on this planet together,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but we're often not really together. So it's not just a given that, yeah, it's now yeah. this time and, and we're, we're together. Mm-hmm. But then also the sense that in order to accomplish that, in order to have this feeling of togetherness, you have to accept that we, li- we do live in different times. That's the heterochrony, yes. So we've talked about contemporaneity. Could you explain what heterochrony?
1: Heterochrony is um, another image comes to mind is when you're standing in line in the supermarket, and you're in a a hurry, because you know, you have to bring your child to, to school or to whatever to a party and and there is this slowness of the line. So there is two different times: your feeling of haste and your feeling of being held back. And heterochoy is is that sense of different times. And of course, this was I developed this in relation to the migrants issue. I curated an exhibition on the moving image and the moving people. So not moving images on moving people, but as juxtaposed, uh, so video and migration. And that uh, heterocony came up there in that uh, curation, about how difficult it is to to, to be. Sin uh, Papeles, this was in Spain, we made uh, a film in Spain then, um, some Papier, you know, the undocumented migrants who are waiting and waiting and waiting for their papers. Well, in the meantime, they are in a haste, in a hurry to make money, to be able to send it home to justify their absence. And so that is that heterogony, there's another term, forgot the other one, but anyway, the one is the experience and the other is the structure. But the point is that we have different experiences of time. There is not one experience of time. And everything is, uh, is in that sense, is like the octopus, is multiple. And, uh, you know, you, kids go to school, they know they have to be there on time, so they go on time and sometimes they are not. And all those, all those elements of being too late and too early and too, you know, not being able to master time, it's another thing. You cannot master it. That all counts in this whole... Uh, Imaging of the octopus. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's, a, it's a case of imaging. And in the book, you see an octopus in ceramic <laughs> made by
0: artists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because that's the beauty of the image as a thought image. It doesn't, uh, like I just re, uh, mentioned a documentary that it instantly made me think of that you haven't seen. So it's not just that you think about something. And you communicate that, uh, like your ideas from your head coming to my head. But mm. the thought image makes me, yeah, engage with other images that I have. That Yes. Yeah. And, and so you provide something rich, but also precise. Another image, may I don't know if you've seen this film called Arrival. It's a science fiction film, but it's a very nice film.
2: Uh, uh, arrival?
0: Arrival, yeah.
1: I think I have, but I'm not sure. So
0: the film is it's a science fiction film where extraterrestrials come,
1: but they, mm-hmm. they're
0: in a, in a spaceship, and yeah. uh, the the protagonist is a linguist hmm. <laughs> and a physicist as well, but she's the main character. And they go inside, and, and those aliens, so that was the other image, they look kind of like octopuses. Okay. Well, the film anyway is about the relationship between language and time. Because she has to learn their language, but as she learns their language, mm-hmm. her sense of time changes and she starts to remember things from the future.
2: Oh. Um,
0: so, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I thought about as well. The You know, the, the concepts we use, the language you use mm-hmm. uh, and, and the relationship to, uh, to time.
2: Yeah.
0: And what it gives me is that because I think about time, uh, not all the time, <laughs> not all the time. A, a lot of time. <laughs> is that it gives some, yeah, images and some concreteness and some materiality to uh, uh, to work with it. Yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah, no time is so abstract. If you if you haven't really a grip on it, the only thing we know is clock time. Yeah, and the clock time is you know like I wake up, whether I set the alarm or not. I wake up at six o'clock. There's nothing I can do about it. And that is because my body has adapted to clock time. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's not the only time there is.
0: I talked to Marsha Bjornarud, a geoscientist uh, again, and she wrote this book called Timefulness.
1: Timefulness, okay.
0: I mean, I see again parallels where she says, okay, in the current situation with climate change, everything going on, we have to... Understand the the planet that we're living on and the and the time, but she says that in order to do that, we can say it's five point four billion years old or whatever doesn't mean anything. That's clock time. Yeah. So she speaks about we have to tell the story and um, anyway, like awareness of of time.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's now so urgent.
0: Yeah, yeah it has to, uh, and it's probably too late. So speaking of time, <laughs> speaking of we, we always have to come to a close, but that was one question as well out of personal interest because, uh, so we've talked about Odorno, that's something he uses the phrase thinking that does not come to a rest. Mm-hmm. Concepts are moving, everything is moving all the time, but it also means that it's never really finished. So you've, produced a lot books articles exhibitions um, uh, lectures many many different areas so you seem to have mastered this skill of finishing a project uh, a product which is about something yeah so that's what I struggle with myself I have so many unfinished projects that are never finished never going to be finished so when do you say okay this is it now it's done at least for now Yeah, well,
1: uh, uh, he has a good point. I don't know that nothing is ever finished, but you can stop. And that means that you accept the unfinished nature of of your product uh, by saying, "Okay, now here I stop. And that's what I did with this book. I needed it to be published. I wanted it out. And so at some point I thought, "Okay, this last chapter is going to be short. And I'm going to just do a few points. And that is it for now. I stop. And I thought, you know, this is really strange, but I'm so addicted to this productivity that I felt almost a bit depressed for not having a project. And then I got this invitation in Paris. Suddenly, I have a new project. I have to do what they ask. So it's not only your own projects that you know, you you cannot always finish them, you cannot finish anything, but you can stop it, you can say, okay, so far for now. Mm -hmm. And then make an ending that I always recommended to my PhDs, do your last epilogue as a sort of setting up of a new project. Just say after this, what can we do? Well, maybe this, and you come up with a new project. But, um, in this case, it just fell on my lap. I had to I now have to do a project on Europe, and that is going to be hard work and lots of reading, but I will do it. And so that's uh, my next
0: project. I guess that's what we'll speak about next year.
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> I hope that I
0: manage it, yes, <laughs> as a last question, um I have a little bit of a sense of people who listen to this and I know some people are very engaged with expressing themselves whether it's in writing or making art or something and sometimes it can be related to yeah, traumas or, or, or coming to grips with with the past and the work we're working on and of course making art can be very therapeutic and healing in itself. So two-part question the first is for those people what can image thinking bring that that it just that it goes beyond just expressing yourself and it becomes maybe something else And huh. on the other side of the spectrum we have the intellectuals <laughs> listening to this, the you know the right. philosophers who read Heidegger and everything like that and they like to think and everything. yeah but maybe is there a way that they can uh, yeah bring in something to do with art and image, their
2: thinking.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's wonderful that you raised that issue, that last one, because I've always protested against the notion of artistic research, because it's only artists who have to be more intellectual, but intellectuals are not asked to be more creative. Yeah. So there is no mutuality.
0: They're they're punished for it, actually. I can
1: uh, then, yeah, yeah from yeah. experience. And then but... it's not scientific enough. And uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So I think there is uh, the dryness of intellectual work is encouraged by the dogmas of of uh, you know, philosophy of, of science. But the uh, the other question, what can what
0: can people do? So the people are working on a project, and and you know there it's it they don't need anything else because it's great to just make art in itself. Yeah, but. It, I feel there's something else like a methodological way of approaching it.
1: Yeah, no, it's clear. It's clear and I I appreciate the question. How can people get beyond this obsession with self-expression? First of all, it's the self. That's the problem. The self is, of course, leading very easily to a sort of navel staring and self-indulgence. And uh, I think that... uh, looking more at the world and being open to what's outside there uh, will help to to do image thinking in in a more productive way. I'm not saying that it is bad to do something about yourself and express yourself, but it can also become a little boring and not everyone has this very gripping sense of self that makes for a good film or a good novel or a good uh, academic work. I think it is really important to open up this sense of self. Opening up is basically the the secret of, of all possibilities. Opening up so that you can look outside of your own small little thing. And if you do that, then you can go back to yourself if you want. But you don't have to do that. I think it is really important at this point in time to look at the world and to look the world in the face and to say you suck something has to happen that's better than this and make not the self-expression but the dialogue between the self and the world the point i think that would be a way of of dealing with this in in a more productive uh, sense
0: well, thank you so much for this conversation
1: Thank you for this opportunity and uh, to express myself. (laughs) (laughs) It was lovely, and I hope we'll do another one next year.
0: And thank you for listening. This is an independent educational podcast. Go to livevanplaterscave.com for ways to support the production of this podcast. Or subscribe, leave a review, or share it with your friends and enemies.